Hello and welcome to episode 6. I'm Maria Archibald and this is Sustain, a podcast about environmental, social, and economic justice. Today I sit down with Dr. Thomas Michael Swenson, a professor of ethnic studies at the University of Utah. When the Russians uh, came into southern Alaska, uh, they enslaved uh, the people on Kodiak Island and other islands and uh, made them over-harvest the sea otter, right? The sea otter was thought to be extinct until uh, I think there were like 12 that they uh, were found at the end of the 19th century uh, in uh, Big Sur, you know, uh, in California. Um, And of course, the sea cow uh, was obliterated before the beginning of the 19th century by uh, Russian businesses. Um, And so, uh, the creation of what we think of as Alaska, start, that's how that started. Stay tuned to learn more from Dr. Swenson as we discuss indigenous belonging and sovereignty in Alaska and beyond. My name is Thomas Michael Swenson. I am an assistant professor at, in the Division of Ethnic Studies in the School of uh, Social, Cultural and Social Transformation at the University of Utah. Uh, I am a historian. That's what I, you know, the, the field that I'm in. I am interested in uh, broadly Native American history and most of my work meets at crossroads of national belonging, the environment, and then also I also write about punk as well. And uh, so my scholarship is primarily driven by what uh, Native people do and say. I'm from Alaska and I'm enrolled in uh, Koniag Incorporated, which is uh, a regional Native corporation of the Kodiak area. Uh, I, I'm also enrolled in Lesno Incorporated, which is uh, more specifically to Woody Island, where my family is from in the Kodiak archipelago. And I also belong to the federally recognized Woody Island tribe, which um, is distinct from the Woody uh, Lesnoi, which is the native village, uh, corporate native village of the Woody Island. Uh, I also sit on the board of directors for the Koniak Education Foundation, which is a uh, non-for-profit that funds uh, the uh, futures of uh, Alutic, uh, Alutic uh, people and uh, through uh, college and vocational and career development grants as well. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your story and um, what it was or what the experiences were that brought you to the work that you do. Well, I was born and raised in the Kodiak Archipelago. Uh, Both uh, my father and I are named after his uncle, Michael Inga, who was uh, 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 the man who kind of raised my father and but uh, he was a, a chief um, and he died in a boating accident in the 1950s. Uh, and I grew up, uh, like my father, working on fishing boats and set net sites as a young person. Uh, but uh, my mother was incarcerated when I was very young and she was released from, uh, released from uh, jail uh, when I was a, a teenager. And so I, went, I moved from Kodiak Island and moved to the big city of Anchorage. Uh, and which is about, uh, you know, 300, 400,000 people given, uh, that's the largest city in, in Alaska. Uh, and, you know, I enrolled in uh, uh, high schools there, but I got kicked out of high school quite often. And then I went to a place called SAVE, which, which was uh, Scholastic and Vocational Education. So it was like a place to train like the future dishwashers of America. And so uh, I graduated from high school about when I was about 20 years old. Um, and during that time, that's when the, uh, the Exxon Valdez oil spill occurred in uh, 1989. And that really took out 
the uh, the marine life in southern Alaska and all through you know, down into the uh, Kodiak Archipelago. And my father, who had worked in canneries as a machinist since he was a very young man, really hasn't he didn't work after that. You know that uh, really uh, they say something uh, about eighty five percent. You know that's that. Uh, uh, of the people on Kodiak Island, one way or another, lived off of the ocean, and that just uh, has only gotten back up to maybe thirty percent. You know, it just never uh, quite recovered in the same way as I understand it. And my father, uh, he um, was a very smart—he was a very smart person, and he was very good at math. And uh, so, when he went to the native boarding school. Um, and he learned, he learned uh, a vocation. He learned how to uh, work with his hands and become a machinist. Uh, at, at, back in the 50s, um, pe people would not necessarily hire Native people uh, to work in canneries. But um, in uh, Kodiak, uh, because it was colonized by the Russians and the Scan Scandinavians, uh, they, uh, that's kind of a thing, like playing up that kind of Scandinavian um, part of your ancestry, whether it's imagined or not, you know, and so he was able, <laughs> my dad was able to get a job at a place called East Point Cannery, where he was uh, a machinist, and he was very good at it, so he would travel all around southern Alaska, uh, working on these kind of, working in these factories, fixing machines. Well, after the oil spill, that job didn't exist anymore, uh, and, uh, and, and that sort of, uh, you know, my father was just about to turn my age, you know, about to be in his 50s. And so he didn't work after that. So that was just gone. Um, and whether, you know, uh, and, and that really, I have a significant role in my life. You know, so, you know uh, before I was born, my mother and father were hunted down uh, by a racist and shot, in, uh, shot at Point Blank Range uh, for uh, a Native man dating a white woman. And um, so, you know, I, I don't think they ever quite recovered from that. And then after the oil spill, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, my, my father was never quite the same after that. You know, that, uh, so I, but I, I was growing up uh, in Anchorage, right, when the spill uh, was, the cleanup was taking place. And uh, I was just a, a, a raw punk. I mean, I was just hanging around downtown causing mischief with my friends, but uh, there were definitely uh, people in, you know, that I knew would go uh, out to um, work uh, cleaning up the rocks and whatnot, which was a very kind of futile uh, job, you know, because the tide would go out and the tide comes back in. It happened during springtime, so when the tides were high. Um, so, you know, that, that's like a, a very significant moment for in Kodiak history because um, people... Uh, my age, uh, you know, they were just coming of age, like going into their 20s, and uh, the, the fishing industry died. And so uh, I guess because of, you know, I, I grew up uh, uh, being involved in subsistence practices and you know, around canneries and um, eating, eating from the sea, that, that uh, part of, uh, you know, the environment has always been kind of part of uh, what I do. So uh, I, start, uh, I started at the community college here in, um, uh, in Salt Lake City when I was about 26 years old. And uh, then I transferred to a little college down the street on 17th South 
um, and uh, finished a bachelor's degree when I was about 30 and uh, went on to uh, earn a PhD in ethnic studies. Uh, but, uh, but you know, before I moved to Anchorage, I was a punk and I've never been anything else. I always kind of come back to that because it's really what I know. And so that's, that's who I always was. And uh, so a lot of my work uh, follows uh, uh, sort of these punk themes as well. Dr. Swenson's research centers the relationships between environment, land, and indigenous belonging, particularly in Alaska. I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit more about um, these relationships and sort of what you've learned about um, indigenous belonging through both your lived experiences and, and also your research? A very uh, sort of topical or uh, popular thing to talk about is the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, particular situation, uh, these, these kinds of situations uh, are very common, you know, more common than you would think. Say, uh, in Alaska, uh, as a product of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act that I'll talk about here in a minute. Um, there was an 800 mile uh, pipeline built uh, from uh, the North Slope down into uh, Southern Alaska through uh, sensitive habitats and you know, the tundra. These kinds of stories that you see, they, they pop up uh, quite often, depend, you know, like you don't have to look far and, and they're very localized stories. And right now I'm just finishing up this manuscript called The Great Land, uh, which is uh, a book that looks at the creation of Alaska as part of native history. So look, thinking about um, when, when the Russians uh, came into Southern Alaska, uh, they enslaved uh, the people on Kodiak Island and other islands and uh, made them over harvest uh, the sea otter, right? The sea otter was thought to be extinct until uh, I think there were like 12 that they uh, were found at the end of the 19th century uh, in uh, Big Sur, you know, uh, in California. Um, and of course, the sea cow uh, was obliterated before the beginning of the 19th century by uh, Russian businesses. Um, and so uh, the creation of what we think of, of Alaska, start, that's how that started. And um, this book that I'm working on looks at uh, this, the participation of Native people uh, in the process of creating Alaska from this, um, you know, from these extractive resources to the oil spill in 1989, which is kind of an extension of this ongoing uh, extraction. And when the United States came, uh, you know, they uh, sort of bestowed liberalism into Native people, and Native people sort of got involved in the structures of democracy. And, but as they were doing that, they also uh, fought for um, their rights as, you know, these kind of extra constitutional rights as part, uh, you know, as owning Alaska in a way that the United States couldn't. Um, now, uh, what does that have to do with the environment? Well, uh, the, uh, the United States after uh, Alaska statehood located a massive uh, oil deposit uh, in the North Slope. Um, now, the United States didn't own the, what they call the, the native title, the aboriginal title, to, do, to get that oil. And a group of activists uh, who were concerned about uh, their place and uh, concerned about their ways of living uh, fought, uh, fought the United States uh, uh, through politics to, uh, to gain particular sets of rights 
uh, they, they were uh, set against becoming um, the way that tribes are understood down here. And so uh, Congress eventually passed what was called the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And that gave on to, uh, in exchange for that uh, title to land, the United States uh, allocated money and startup corporations for uh, Native groups. And, uh, and, and, in, and in many sense, this is the same kind of relationship to land that the surf, a surf relationship, right? And we know that surfs like in Europe are based, you know, are, are attached to land that is to make profit, right, for uh, a lord. And so these corporations carried on that kind of legacy of serfdom in a way that's uh, very distinct to that conversation. So uh, say my corporations uh, hold land and if they wish to develop it, then they pay taxes on it, just like, uh, and so that's different than down here with the tribes. Um, so uh, this particular um, book then uh, ends with uh, thinking about uh, how this kind of fight for democracy amongst uh, Alaska natives who still make up a very large proportion of the population in Alaska, how that, uh, that's kind of enfranchisement sort of uh, went its separate ways after the oil spill because the oil spill broke something that existed long before the United States ever came. And that was this kind of cultural tie uh, to uh, the environment, right? To salmon, to um, herring, to crab, all of that was gone for a number of years. And so the book, uh, while it looks at this kind of fight for enfranchisement, shows how this kind of uh, national annexation and Native people sort of part ways when it comes to uh, the degradation of the environment. Sovereignty is an important word, particularly in conversations about Indigenous belonging and self-determination. It is also a commonly misunderstood word, and one that often takes on different meanings in different contexts. What does indigenous sovereignty look like to you and particularly as it relates to the environment and land? There are some material things about sovereignty that I think are important. And uh, one of those is that of course, tribal sovereignty, um, uh, you know, uh, create, it creates a, a, a legal or extra constitutional distinction from uh, states or uh, cities uh, and the federal government. Uh, quite often, some people will say that, you know, uh, tribes are the fourth branch of the U.S. government, right? And uh, other people, of course, uh, would say, of course, that tribes um, are completely separate from the U.S. government. And I think somewhere between that, of course, is the truth, right? Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of gray area there. And I think that um, in, a, in, you know, in a very material way, the Department of the Interior uh, employs about 10,000 people that deal distinctly with tribes. And that's like the reality of it. And, but I think, um, you know, that uh, state universities, you know, are, are funded by the state. The state uh, and tribes are typically called uh, the deadliest enemies. That's kind of a, <laughs> a, a phrase, not, not my phrase, of course but to, to describe the relationship between tribes and states. And um, so quite often, I think, uh, at least, you know, in my head, this kind of conversation that, uh, you know, how could you expect like a state institution 
to sort of really round out what tribes are because they're uh, quite often in competition with one another. And, um, but uh, tribes you know, have particular kinds of economic sovereignty that uh, is separate from states. Uh, tribal, uh, tribal members have uh, particular burdens and responsibilities, but also benefits. Uh, one of them would be, say, if uh, I'm a tribal member uh, on Woody Island tribe, but if I was um, uh, arrested for an alleged crime uh, on a reservation down here, they would have jurisdiction over me, opposed to uh, you know the state government. I mean, depending on the crime, of course. But you know, um, um, and so those are like very real kinds of uh, mechanical things and material things that I like to talk about in my classes because they do affect people. Um, so uh, uh, when it comes to um, thinking about that in relationship to the environment. Um, there's a place in Southern Kodiak called the Karlik River. Uh, and at its mouth, uh, the Karlik River uh, for uh, since time immemorial has been a place of abundant salmon. And the Russians uh, found it and started uh, exploiting that region. And then when the United States came in, you know, they continued to uh, use uh, the mouth of the Karlik River for uh, salmon. Now in the 1930s, uh, the United States allowed uh, the village of Karlik to become a recognized tribal government. And what they did is they tried to create a reservation of water around the mouth of the river. Uh, and that didn't, uh, that didn't go very well in courts because um, the, uh, the state of Alaska uh, under the White Act said that no, no one group could have um, special hold over uh, you know, natural resources. If you're uh, familiar with, um, with tribal governments, right, and this idea we think of tribal governments as uh, maintaining a certain sort of sovereignty in relationship to federal law, but the way that uh, Alaska came to be part of the United States was through Russia. And so when the United States purchased Alaska, there was no precedent for uh, uh, if these people had legal rights or if they owned the land or not. That wasn't something that the czar was interested in defining. So uh, there isn't that sort of case law that we see like with the Cherokee. In you know, my own experience, I found the relationships between the sustainability movement and environmental organizations and indigenous communities to be a complicated one. Um, and I've seen both powerful collaborations and aligned goals, but I've also seen environmental organizations at odds with indigenous sovereignty. So I was wondering if you could tell me about your own experience and your community's experience with environmental nonprofits um, and the Western sustainability movement in general. Well, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act gave the United States the ability to drill for oil in the North Slope without contending with legal rights from Native people, right? The uh, congressional law set up 13 regional and uh, hundreds of village corporations with an amount of money in exchange for clearing Native title to Alaska land. Now, uh, my, corp my village corporation uh, is called Lesnoy and it's based around uh, Woody Island. Now in, in the 1950s, or uh, maybe a little earlier than that, there was a religious organization that turned in uh, the plat to Kodiak Island. With the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, the village of Lesnoy actually then didn't own any very much land on Woody Island. And so the government then, said, okay, well, uh, since that land is private property, you know, it was taken from them, of course, 
um, then we'll allot you land somewhere else. Now, um, after that, uh, a, uh, I'll, and I'll keep this kind of uh, organization nameless, a, a very popular environmental organization started suing uh, the native corporation saying uh, that they didn't have, like they sh that they shouldn't own this land because um, they were not a real village. So over time that, um, uh, that religious organization uh, made a claim to the entire island and thus the state of Alaska or the federal government allocated land off of the island for this village. Now, um, that I guess got a lot of bad press for this, uh, for the uh, environmental organization that was trying to discredit native people from owning land. And so what happened is that uh, particular lawsuit went away and my third grade teacher, Omar Stratman, who was a rancher started suing uh, my corporation um, because his ranch was near all of this land that we had acquired. And so that went on from I, you know, the time I was like a little kid to uh, 2009, I believe is when the, uh, finally the Supreme Court said, this is over. This idea of like, you know, uh, that uh, somehow uh, native people and uh, you know, uh, environmental uh, agencies are somehow, or environmental organizations are somehow in league uh, I wouldn't say is is true or untrue. You know, I, I would I would imagine it's very situational. What does a sustainable future look like to you? Lately, I've uh, my son and I have been doing a lot of skateboarding. Uh, he's eight he's eight years old, and so I just have been so you know it's just like the perfect age because uh, you know once you start skateboarding, you know you can do it for the rest of your life, and that's what I think I'm just so excited about. You know, here I am. In, an older person and I can skateboard, he can skateboard. And um, well, uh, so what we have been doing is skating, uh, getting to the sort of top of South Temple uh, over by where it turns into Virginia and just skating down the sidewalk as far as we can to like uh, the Catholic church. And just to get him used to like moving and you know shifting his weight. And this is so funny, we were skating and just, uh, at about uh, 10th East and South Temple, we see these, uh, we see a, uh, a skateboard wheel on the side of the sidewalk. And so we stopped and we're like, what? And we started looking around and we found an entire bag of like skateboard wheels and um, uh, various uh, pieces, you know, like uh, bearings and screws and tools that somebody had um, brought to the side of a, uh, a trash can, and um, and my uh, my family, my my better uh, my better half, and my son are Colombian, uh, and you know uh, that kind of uh, you know like uh, that you just kind of throw things away, you know, is so is so foreign to other groups of people, you know, and I normally spend like. Uh, for uh, four months of the year in Colombia and then the rest up here. And just how uh, people use things in Colombia, you know, people drive cars, you know, they, they, they work on cars, Pe you know, people, uh, you know, take care of things in a different way. And I, and I think um, while, uh, while uh, this kind of idea of like 
that uh, North Americans are supposed to be this kind of guiding moral consciousness filled with catchphrases for the rest of the world. I don't, you know, I think if we cleaned up our own house and uh, that would be a good place to start. To learn more about relationships between land, environment, and identity, tune in next month as Dr. Armando Solorzano discusses Latinx belonging and histories in Utah. You're listening to Sustain, a podcast by the University of Utah Sustainability Office. For monthly episodes, subscribe to Sustain on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To learn more about our work, visit sustainability.utah.edu or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sustainable U of U. Interviews and editing of this podcast are done by me, Maria Archibald, a graduate student in the University of Utah's Environmental Humanities Program and a graduate assistant in the Sustainability Office. The music in this podcast was written and performed by Yusuf Farah. Special thanks to my brother, Daniel Archibald, for his sound editing support.